0: You know, when we learn how to take care of ourselves, it allows us to teach our students how to better take care of themselves. And when we look at the huge mental health crisis that's occurring with our youth and the rates of anxiety and depression and suicidality, it starts with taking care of yourself. And so, you know, I tell them, that look, there's nothing there's nothing honorable about pulling an all nighter like work smart, not hard. The kids know that I always say that. And, um, you know, you shouldn't pull an all nighter. You shouldn't cram. That's not going to help you. How can you take care of yourself? And when, they, when their students who look up to their teachers can see us practice that, I think it helps them learn how to practice that, too.
1: Welcome to Hashtag Teacher Life. I'm your host, Victoria Wong, a retired kindergarten teacher, aspiring nomad, and lover of honest and open conversations. This podcast is dedicated to giving teachers a platform to share their stories, and in doing so, create a community where educators feel empowered, can support each other, and together improve the health and sustainability of teachers, one honest conversation at a time. That was Ashley from New York. Ashley was incredibly intelligent, self-aware and well-spoken. And she articulated so clearly the importance of boundaries, how her anxiety manifests into the classroom and why she so strongly believes in working smart instead of working hard. I left the conversation eager to reflect further on my own habits and mindsets that were impacting my own mental wellness and I felt optimistic that such self-reflection and self-awareness could really lead to better teacher sustainability. Okay, we're recording. Hey, Ashley, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: Good. Um, so I always start off with asking you to describe yourself in five words.
0: Um, all right, in five words, I would have to say I'm probably... Um, probably very passionate, Um, I love what I do, I um, have a sense of humor, so I guess funny. Um, I I can be intense um, at times, I think I'm pretty joyful, I I, I love, I I find things that I love and I follow them, and I don't know, passionate, did I say that?
1: I think you said that for the first one.
0: I said that for the first one, okay. um,
1: So very, very passionate then.
0: (laughs) Yes, I'm very passionate. Probably, um, hmm. uh, I think I'm loyal. I, I think that once I decide that I, I'm loyal to something, it, it's very hard to change my mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, um, those five words are all things that I would definitely associate with teaching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's perfect. Um, yeah,
0: I, I was definitely born to teach. Um, I decided I wanted to be a teacher when I was 11, and uh, I got to college, and the first week I declared my major um, and decided that that was what I was going to do. I thought I was graduating early and then I decided college was fun and I wanted to stick around. Um, but I declared and, and really never looked back.
1: (laughs) So you always wanted to be a teacher since like middle school? Yes. Was there something, maybe a teacher or a person or an event that made you decide you wanted that?
0: Yeah, I had a really amazing sixth grade teacher. Um, I loved, I was one of those very strange individuals who really loved middle school, which um, I don't think is something you hear a lot, but I loved middle school. Um, I loved being out of elementary school. I loved um, not walking in lines anymore. Um, Sorry, that's a cat. Um, I loved (laughs) um, being able to, um, you know, be in differentiated classes. We had, you know, like honors track and that sort of thing. So I felt like I was really being challenged in a way that I hadn't before, and it was really fun. Um, and so I had this really great math and science teacher and she was very, she was young. She was probably in her twenties and she was very calm and she loved cats and I love cats. Um, and she just had this way of making math seem very easy and math had always been something I struggled with. Um, and there were some very naughty boys in my science class as sixth grade boys tend to be. Um, and I just was so impressed with how she handled them. She never got flustered and eventually they grew to respect her. And I thought, that's pretty cool. Um, so from that time on, I, I really decided that I wanted to do something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great. I love hearing about how people got into teaching and what kind of inspired them. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that you love middle school because the last teacher I interviewed is a sixth grade middle school teacher. Oh, that's and so And we were both talking about how awkward middle school is and how she oh, so like, watches how awkward her kids are and how yeah. nobody loves middle school. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I was so awkward in middle school, and um, I stayed close with that teacher. And by the time I was in seventh grade, my parents divorced, and I was going through a lot of stuff at home. And she was just somebody I could go to for support. And when it reached a point where I needed a little more support, um, she got me in touch with some some people who could provide that support for me. And um, she was just, just really uh, this great presence in my life. And uh, she got me involved in peer tutoring. And so I would be I would tutor as a seventh-grade student her sixth-graders who were struggling in math. So that was really my introduction to um, sort of teaching. And I thought, this is awesome. And I really liked it. And she was very encouraging and said, you really have a way of explaining stuff without telling them the answer. Um, And so I I started to to learn how to do that when I was 12.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, you've been teaching since you were 12 then.
0: Yeah, sure. Why not?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how long have you been a teacher?
0: This is my sixth year in the classroom. Um, I did spend one year as a daily sub um, because when I got out of school, there were not a lot of jobs. Um, it was sort of the picking up after that recession of 08 and, uh, there were just no teaching jobs in the area for me. So I did a year of subbing, which was really hard. Um, and so I have utmost respect for substitutes. Um, and then I got my first job and I was in a private school teaching 12th grade.
1: Okay. And can you tell us a little bit more about your path in education since that first year?
0: Sure. So I worked at the private school for a year, and. Um, I'm in New York state. And so the public system is is really strong and we have a very strong pension. It's a very strong union state. And um, I I knew that I wanted to be back in the public system. So um, I kind of took a gamble. I left the private school and I took a long-term sub position in a public district uh, nearby. And so that was a one-year position. Um, It started off part-time and then went to full-time, which was great. Um, But after that year, the long-term position did not uh, pan out. So um, after that, I was looking for something more permanent, and I applied at a very rural school the next county over, and I taught there for three years. And so that brings me to now, and after three years, uh, I'm kind of moved back to the suburbs, and I'm now in a, a very large suburban district um, in a 9 through 12 building, services about 1,400 kids, um, and I teach 10th and 12th grade. And I love it. And I know that this is the district that I want to retire from. I have a great administrator. I have a great superintendent. Um, I feel like I've I've really struck gold because at this point uh, in my career, I think I realize how rare it is uh, to be able to say those things that I feel so incredibly supported by my administration and by my students and by their parents. Um, And that was not always the case. So I, I feel like I finally landed where I'm supposed to be.
1: Oh, that's like the ultimate combination of having support from admin and parents and students. Yeah, the it's definitely the
0: trifecta. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know it, and I know I'm lucky, and uh, I don't intend to leave.
1: Awesome. So I'm like curious about what that kind of support looks like coming from those three different groups of people, like from admin, yeah. from students, teachers.
0: Um, you know, I think a lot of it is. Um, It's unfortunate, but I think a lot of it starts with socioeconomic status. And I'm in an area where it's a little more well off, like particularly more compared to my my rural school where I was. So you're coming, the kids are coming to school with educated parents and the the parents are emphasizing the importance of education because they themselves have graduated high school and college and have professional jobs. Um, So kids come in right away, understanding the importance of what they're there to do. And they're prepared to learn because they're not having their electricity shut off and they're not hungry. Um, and when you have kids who are struggling with those things, learning is not their priority and, and you can't blame them. Um, so in terms of student support, um, the kids come in very willing to learn and, and respecting of teachers. Um, and that's that's great. And I, I love my kids and that's how they're taught at home. But I also, I don't blame my kids who, who weren't always in that state of mind because I don't always think, I don't think it was their fault necessarily. Um, parents uh, are great. I, I have never experienced those, those infamous nasty parent emails um, that, you, that you read about sometimes that are very amusing, but uh, probably not amusing to receive. Um, you know, I've, I've reached out. I, I, you know, a huge part of education today is, is being in touch with parents. And it can be really overwhelming, um, especially as a younger teacher teaching older students to email a parent who's older than me and say, hey, you know, your child is, is not doing well academically, or your child misbehaved, and um, parents reply back and say, uh, thank you, you know, I'm, I'm so embarrassed, they cc in the other parent, and that's not how I raised my child, you will be receiving an apology, the child apologizes, and they don't have their phone for a week, um, and so I've really seen those consequences play out, and uh, once the students know that, you know, I'm not messing around, and I'll call mom, um, it really sort of increases the level of respect because I think kids do want consequences. They don't know they want consequences, but they do.
1: Um,
0: they, they want the, um, they want to know that, that they can push their limits, but that those limits will be enforced to help keep them safe. And from an administrative standpoint, um, we have a lot of freedom. We're not micromanaged. Um, that's the biggest thing. I mean, I've worked for micromanagers and it's a pain. Um, you know, we we're under the, I'm not sure what every other state does, but in New York, when you're untenured, you get observed two times formally and one time informally. Um, you're, you're paired up with a mentor. And so we, we do all of those things, but beyond that, like nobody's up in my business. Um, and that's something I really appreciate. We have a lot of freedom to develop our own lessons. We don't have to submit lesson plans. Um, cause that's something that i think is really challenging when teachers are required to submit lesson plans because a you know the administrators not reading them all b if they are reading them if they're not certified in your subject area how do they know if they're any good um and c especially when you're new to the field there are days when you're only one day ahead of the kids um sometimes you're only one period ahead of the kids but as long as you're ahead of the kids i think that's okay um and as long as the kids don't know how, how very little you're ahead of them, that's okay too, as long as you end up there in the end. Um, so not being required to submit lesson plans as an untenured teacher um, has given me a lot more freedom, I think, to experiment with new things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, and I learn from them. Um, and so I feel very encouraged to to try things I might not otherwise try with my classes.
1: Oh, that sounds wonderful. How has that, (laughs) that sounds great. How has that impacted how you feel like in the classroom as a teacher in your day-to-day actions?
0: It's like night and day. I, I didn't realize how much uh, my mental health was being affected when I was working in a toxic work environment until I was no longer there. Um, and I just, I physically feel lighter. Um, I feel respected. I feel confident Um, if something goes wrong, I'm like, all right, well, that didn't work. Let's, let's try something different, but it's not an immediate, you know, cast on my character. I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like everything comes down to what I do in the classroom. And if something doesn't succeed, I'm a horrible human being anymore. Versus when I, when I didn't have supportive, um, a supportive work environment, I did. I, I felt like everything I did in the classroom had to be absolutely perfect. Otherwise, I failed not only as an educator, but as a person. And that's just a really unhealthy way to live. Um, I don't think it's good to have any any one single part of your identity be that all-encompassing.
1: Yeah, I 100% feel that. I definitely went through that transition this year of separating my identity from just being an ed- educator to also, yeah. you know, also being a person. Yes, um, But I would say that my administration is pretty supportive. And still, it's so easy to feel like everything that you do in the classroom defines your success as a person.
0: (laughs) It is. And I think especially as a new teacher, because as a new teacher, you will work a lot. You know, um, I remember when I was in college, my advisor said, you will work harder the first five years than you even know is possible. And I'm in year six right now. And I thought, she's right. it it all of a sudden just got a little bit easier in the last year or two. But the first five years, you're you're constantly grading. You're not fast at it yet. You're creating new lessons. Everything is the steepest learning curve you've ever experienced. Um, And so it's exhausting, and it's very easy to let it become your whole identity, especially because I feel like people, you don't go into teaching for the money. We know that. Um, You don't go into it for the public prestige. You go into it because you love it. Um, and so when you love something, it's very easy to let it become a huge part of your identity. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you can't let it drag you down. A bad day at work cannot cannot ruin you know your entire week or a negative interaction with a student or a parent can't set the tone for your entire day. Sorry, my cat is shaking my computer. Um, it's just not healthy.
1: Yeah, that's a really great mindset to go into teaching with. And I think that's something that people don't really tell a lot of younger teachers. Um, So like, what, how did you get to that point? Like you are in year six, and it seems like you have a much more positive outlook on and like a healthier outlook on how to balance your life as a teacher. How did you get to that point?
0: Um, It definitely started in what was my fourth year, it was my second year in that rural district. And I, I really just felt like I was drowning, and um, what was unique about the, the rural school I worked in was the faculty was incredibly close. Um, we always joked it was sort of like like being combat veterans. Like, you just got really close really fast because you saw a, a lot of stuff together, and we would go out together. It was a very young faculty, um, so that, that helped me get through a lot of the stuff I experienced, but um, around Christmas time, it, it was just getting bad, you know, winter blues and that sort of thing, and I said, this has to stop. So I set a New Year's resolution for myself that one night a week I was not bringing home school work. Um, and that was that was big because I was still doing work at, at my kitchen table until 9 p.m. every night. And I said one night a week I'm not bringing it home, and, and that's my goal. Um, so I decided to make it Wednesday nights, midweek, just take a break. If I needed to do work Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, that was fine. Um, and it was – really challenging, but just having that as a goal, um, and having written it down and told people about it, you know, all the usual things you're supposed to do for accountability for setting goals, um, helped me to stick to it. And I realized that I really started to look forward to those Wednesday nights and somehow I wasn't falling behind. I I just started to work a little smarter when I knew that I was setting that time aside for myself. Um, and it became very sacred. And sometimes I stayed in and did laundry and sometimes I went out, And sometimes I went to the gym and sometimes I ate chocolate cake like it varied. I didn't really have a schedule, but the only thing I didn't do was schoolwork. Um, and that became very important. So it started with a new year's resolution and, um, now I've gotten to the point where it's very unusual for me to bring work home. I I get a lot of it done at work. I will go in early. I will stay a little later, but I, I try not to bring work home into my personal space. Of course I have to do it. Sometimes we all do, um, but just being very mindful of that and just saying, you know, I need to work smart and not necessarily work myself into the ground because there's nothing honorable about that. Um, there's nothing honorable about working yourself into exhaustion, although I think there is this rhetoric and education that makes us believe that there is.
1: Mm hmm. When you kind of found accountability partners, did you find that a lot of teachers were supportive of you in doing that? Or did you see any pushback or, like, guilt tripping with wanting they to take time for yourself? They were very supportive.
0: Very, very supportive, but at the same time um, not willing to do it for themselves. Um, and so it was one of those, oh, good for you. That's never something I could do. So it, while it wasn't explicit guilt tripping, um, there, there I felt like there was a little bit of implicit guilt Um, And I I just recently saw, you know, a Facebook post from a former colleague who said, yeah, I take parent phone calls at 630 a.m. And I was like, first of all, why does a parent have your cell phone number? Second of all, that's not healthy. 630 a.m. Like that's I'm not even conscious at 630 a.m. And so everybody was commenting and saying, oh, my gosh, you're so amazing. Like, this is why you're such a great educator and I commented and I just said boundaries <laughs> and <laughs> several people messaged me privately and said, yep, someone needed to say it because I don't believe that that type of martyr attitude of, yeah, I take parent calls at six thirty AM on my personal cell phone. You know what? If that works for you, fine. It happens to work for this individual and you know what? Power to them. But if it doesn't work for someone and I would, argue that it probably doesn't work for most people. Um, that doesn't mean you're a bad teacher. That doesn't mean you don't love your kids. That doesn't mean you're not incredibly dedicated. And I think we really need to work to break, um, that perception that if you're a teacher, well, you do it for the kids. And that means you have to be a complete martyr and you have to give everything of yourself and you can't dedicate time to yourself or to your
1: family. Mm -hmm. How does that, idea of teachers being martyrs play a role that you've seen in like teachers day-to-day lives and how they feel about themselves?
0: Um, I think teachers are really bad at self-care. I think, I mean, you, you see it in the staff room. We are great stress eaters. I mean, you can always tell it's getting close to report card time when the donuts show up in the staff room. Um, We mask our feelings with food. It's just a thing you get uh, I mean considering that we our work day ends comparatively early compared to the rest of the world it i feel like for a lot of educators it's very hard to get into a good groove with going to the gym and and doing something physical to take care of yourself because the work is so exhausting i mean being around kids all day is exhausting so to say i'm going to go do something physical and take care of myself um it is hard it's really really hard and, well, it's easy to stay late and work with kids on extra help and coach, coach a sport and run a club and, you know, direct the drama. Um, but what I see then is teachers getting sick, um, burning out. You know, the statistics now say that, like, 20% of all teachers burn out within the first five years. And to me, that's really sad because... I feel like when you're when you're new to the field and you're young and the first five years are the hardest, like they're going to be really, really hard. But if we're not um, making self-care more of a priority and making it more socially acceptable, how are you not going to burn out? Like, How are you not going to burn out in this field if we don't teach new teachers how to do that? And if older teachers don't set an example, Um, and I also believe it's part of setting an example to our students. Um, You know, I've got students who are taking AP exams right now. Last week and this week are our national AP exams and they're exhausted and they're cramming and they're not bragging, but they're saying, I only got two and a half hours of sleep last night. And I say, why? Well, I had to study. I said, but is that productive? It, you know, when we learn how to take care of ourselves, it allows us to teach our students how to better take care of themselves. And when we look at the huge mental health crisis that's occurring with our youth and the rates of anxiety and depression and suicidality, it starts with taking care of yourself. And so, you know, I tell them, that look, there's nothing there's nothing honorable about pulling an all nighter like work smart, not hard. The kids know that I always say that. And, um, you know, you shouldn't pull an all nighter. You shouldn't cram. That's not going to help you. How can you take care of yourself? And when they when their students who look up to their teachers can see us practice that I think it helps them learn how to practice that too.
1: Mhm. Absolutely. Yeah, I teach kindergarten, so I <sighs> yeah, it's kind You're of saying. like trying to instill those values, but I love what you said about working smart versus working hard because right. I definitely experienced that like growing up through high school and then also a lot in my university that I went to. Yeah. People would take so much pride in saying Oh, I haven't slept in two days. Like I've right. been in the library for like 12 hours writing a paper and they would say it half complaining, but half like, wow, look at me. I'm working so hard. Yeah. So exactly. I think, yeah, I think I definitely went into my first year of teaching with that same mentality of, Ooh, look at me. I'm such a great teacher. I get there at 6am. I leave at 7pm. Yes. I'm giving so much of myself because I'm such a caring person.
0: Right. And exactly.
1: Yeah. And it's so horrible. Like our kids should not be growing up with that mentality because no. working hard is important, but you also need to know when to stop and you need working to know when to take important. care of yourself.
0: You need to know when to stop. And, um, you know, I, I, it took me a while to learn that too. Obviously in high school, I took APs and, you know, I, I studied all night and in, finally in college, it started to click. And I, I remember saying, all right, I've reached my limit. I've reached my limit. This is no longer productive. And, And I had a student who was crying over her homework the other day, which was not by any stretch of the imagination a difficult homework, but she was maxed out. She was exhausted. She was hungry. She was thirsty. She had been up all night studying. And I said, you're done. And she said, no, 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 I have to do this. I have to do this. And I said, this isn't productive. This isn't healthy. You need to get something to eat. You need to get something to drink. And we need to try again later. And when she came back after school to work on it, she finished it in 15 minutes. And so I think – by us practicing those things as educators, we can then demonstrate it to our students and and they need to learn it they they need to learn those skills as well
1: Mhm-, yeah, it definitely like I'm sure seeing all of these a p exams coming up, like the stress I remember being so yes. stressed in high school, yes, I remember there They're was one so
0: stressed
1: yeah, and there was one of my friends who was one of those people who would always like pull all nighters and yep not eat for 12 hours because he was busy studying and he passed it, out in school. Yeah. He passed out awful. because he hadn't slept. He hadn't eat. He hadn't had water and he just had to go home. And I was just like, yeah. Oh my goodness. That's not, I need to stop doing that.
0: <laughs> right. And I think as teachers, we don't think, Oh my God, I need to stop doing that. We think, wow, they care so much. Like it's not, caring is not a competition and it, it shouldn't be. And, um, I follow a lot of, you know, teacher pages on social media. And one of them said, you know, post post an emoji to say, like, how your self-care is. Like, yeah, everything's great. This one means I, I'm doing pretty well, but I need to make some time for myself. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I shared it because I have a lot of teacher friends. And so everybody was kind of reflecting because May is a difficult month. Um, and one of my friends posted, like, the, the lowest one, the angry crying face. So I said, okay, what are you going to do this weekend to take care of yourself? And she said, nothing. I have no time at all. I have to do this, 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 this. And I said, there's 48 hours. Can you take one hour and take a bubble bath? No, I don't have time. Okay. And, and to me, that's that's part of the martyr complex. And mm-hmm. that's something that we have to work to end because this is why we're losing teachers. And this is why um, people are leaving the profession. You know, I would love it if our society could shift. I would love it if teachers were treated as the root of all other professions because we are. It starts in kindergarten. But that's not where our society is today, and that's not something that I can control. What I can control is how I treat myself, which then translates to how I'm able to teach my students to treat themselves. And so I hope that with time, society will change how we look at teachers as, as a general profession. Um, but in the short term, I think it's, it's really important that we learn how to to stand up for ourselves
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're completely right. And where do you feel some of these influences or voices that encourage martyrdom are coming from? Um,
0: I think, well, I'll flip that. I'll say that I think some of the voices challenging the martyrdom are, are the millennial generation, you know, in our twenties and thirties, we're the generation that we're the, we're the therapy generation. I, I read somewhere that, this, this awareness of mental health was simply not as prevalent in earlier generations. Um, It's, it wasn't talked about, you know, stress wasn't really talked about. It wasn't a, it's, it was a part of life. It is what it is. So I think that um, as new generations of teachers are coming in, having been raised with the sense that mental health is as important as physical health, we're bringing that to the profession. Um, And so I don't know if the, it's the mar- the martyrdom is not what's different. It's, it's the challenging of it. That's new. Um, and saying, no, it's, that's not cool. That's not okay. Um, because I've, you know, from some of the articles I've read, it's not just teaching, it's, it's other fields as well. Um, you know, that, that's how we get the rep as being lazy because God forbid we take sick days. Um, and so things like that. Um, I think that again, this this new generation of of working adults is we're not prepared to, to work ourselves to death because I think we realize that there's more to life than that. And also, you know, given the economic situation, you can work yourself to death and you might still be living in your parents basement because of student loans. So (laughs) that's just how it is.
1: Yeah. I love, I love that you're bringing in the millennial generation because I have talked to a lot of older people like parents and we're always called lazy. The millennials are lazy and I was thinking a lot this weekend, I was like, I absolutely hate that word. I hate it when people are being called lazy because I don't think anyone is lazy. People have reasons for just not doing work and that doesn't mean that they don't care. That means they just might have different priorities in their life. And there is so much teacher guilt. The six like taking sick days, it's so hard as a teacher, which is so unique to teaching. Like it's I feel like there are very few professions where when you are sick you have to spend a few hours getting all of your sub work and your sub plans done. And then you spend the rest of the day worrying about
0: your yeah. students. Yeah, It's harder to be out than it is to go to work. The number of teachers who I have seen vomiting in their own trash cans because they refuse to go home. I'm like, this is not cool. You got to leave. First of all, you could infect me, which is, you know, my biggest priority. And second of all, like, again, what sort of example are you setting? If you're sick, you should go home. And um, but it's they've made it so difficult. And again, I think this is where a good administration comes into play. You know, we have sick days where a union state, we take them. Um, I have worked in a school where if you took what the administration deemed as too many sick days, although I believe under that contract, we were granted 15, which to me seems like a lot of sick days. But if somebody took six, seven sick days, um, they would get called in and talked to and the administration would ask, you know, um is anything going on? Can can we be more supportive? Because there's a substitute teacher shortage. Um you have the flu, you're out for 5 days, like that that's a lot. Um you know, your child gets sick. So it was a lot of um, you know, women really being punished for this for for taking off time to be with their families again, placing their families above their work. Um somebody who might have had surgery, uh, a pregnancy, things like that and so there's the sense of guilt even taking care of yourself physically um is like looked down upon and there's the sense of pride if you come to school you know dripping out of every facial orifice oh no i'm 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 here to teach no i you shouldn't be here to teach it's
1: disgusting mhm yeah definitely i've started taking a larger amount of sick days this year and it has done so much for me mentally like there are some times where taking a sick day or a mental health day could prevent me needing to take two to three days off in the future or like even exactly. being physically sick. Like if you feel like you're about to have a fever and you have a headache, take a whole day, sleep for 24 hours and then yes. you will probably heal much faster.
0: Yes, you will heal mm-hmm. faster. And, um, uh, and you know, in terms of how work environment can affect that, I think that when you're in a toxic environment, stress will cause physical symptoms and, I was a lot more unhealthy when I was working in an unhealthy environment. I I just got sick more and, you know, maybe it was just circumstance, but I I think it was stress because stress breaks down your immune system, uh, does things to your gut. You know, your, most of your immune system is in your gut and the teachers who remain in, in my previous district are sick a lot. And we've started to talk about the impact of stress um, on immunity, on health. And I think that's something that also needs to be talked about when we look at, um, you know, teachers missing school. And I think from a bottom line, when when a school district looks at it and says, well, this teacher is missing too much school. okay, well, why do some people milk the system? Absolutely. That's going to happen anywhere. But if you're looking at a a larger cultural problem within an individual school or a district or, or even a profession, what's happening? you know, how is stress affecting this? Plus, mm-hmm. you know, we're around kids all day and we're exposed
1: to every germ possible. Oh, my goodness. Yes. We have very few sick days yet. We are the most likely to get the weirdest diseases and infections.
0: <laughs> yes, especially mm-hmm. kindergarten, I can imagine.
1: Oh, my gosh. The <laughs> amount of times a student has sneezed in my face. It, I That's don't the reason that. I
0: teach high school, actually. I, I was debating, <laughs> do I teach elementary or do I teach high school? And I thought, well, high schoolers are going to be a lot less likely to get me sick. And um, I have some obsessive compulsive tendencies and I, I'm really kind of squeamish about germs. And I said, Nope, I'm teaching high school.
1: Yeah. My second day of teaching kindergarten, one of my students came out from the bathroom and he needed help because, you know, they don't have the motor skills to zip up their own pants. So I was on my knees, like buttoning his pants and he's just like, "Ah, and then just, Oh, gosh, everything went on my face. And I was like, oh, this is my life now. Oh, God, I'm going to get sick within the first three days of school. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I have like a relatively strong immune system. But, I've yeah, I've gotten pretty sick the past two years. Yeah,
0: you will get, Mm -hmm. especially in the first couple of years, you will get very sick (laughs) Mm -hmm. until you're immune to everything. And then you won't get sick ever.
1: Yeah. Perks of being a teacher. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You get all the diseases and then after four or five years, you'll be fine for the rest of your life.
0: Oh, yeah. Exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I kind of wanted to go back to what you were talking about a little earlier of setting boundaries for yourself um, and taking care of yourself. And you say now, like, you don't really take work home and you try to keep that out of your personal, um, I guess, area. Right. I guess there's, like, two facets to kind of detaching. Like, there's not physically bringing work home, but how do you mentally detach from work?
0: So the biggest thing was in my very first job, I I promptly was very excited to sync up my work email with my phone. I thought, this is great. I can get my work emails immediately. But then what happened was I would be laying in bed at 1030 at night and a student would email me and I would immediately get it. Or the principal would email me and I would immediately think about it. Um, And it was awful. Even on the weekends, there was never a break, even if it wasn't urgent. And of course, most of the time it wasn't because it's never that urgent. Um, There was no break. So when I got to my second job at the long term subbing, I said, that's it. We're not putting school email on my phone. So that was a huge one. Um, I do not have my school email synced to my phone. If I want to check my school email, it takes a little more effort. And so I don't usually. I don't check my work email over the weekend, and I certainly don't check it um, night to night. Once I leave the school building, I, I am not on my email. If there's anything that urgent that somebody needs to reach me, there are ways for people I work with to reach me. And if it's if it's a parent, I will catch them in the morning. Um, so detaching from email um, was a huge starting point for me, and I think that's something that um, you know with with the prevalence of, of technology that we we all just feel very accountable immediately to reply to an email as fast as possible. But our sort of unspoken rule in my district is 24 hours, 24 hours to reply to an email. And that's, that's fair. And that's professional. Um, and it has been very helpful at times, especially if an email has made me angry and uh, to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to walk away from this and I will respond in 24 hours because I'm sure the response that I draft 24 hours later is a much better response than if I had responded in 10 seconds. Um, so that's one I think um, you know, how, do I, how else do I detach? Um I, I work very hard when I'm at work. Um I think a mistake that I made earlier in my career was um doing too much socializing at work, which like of course you want to because when you're around kids all day, any grown-up time is really sacred. Um and that, that makes a lot of sense. So um what I finally started doing was really holding my lunchtime as my socialization time. Like this is my lunch. This is my grown-up time. I get to talk to somebody who's not 15 years old. Um, And I really enjoy my lunches. And I take my lunch and I actually eat it. I eat it in the staff room and I talk to other adults. And so that's really my time to be social with other adults. But during my planning periods, and we have a block schedule, so some days I have three planning periods and some days I have one. Um, During my planning periods, I work. I I put my head down. I don't talk. And I get stuff done because I know I get my lunch and that's when I get to talk to adults. Um, whereas I think when I was trying to restrict myself and say, no, you have to work through your lunch or you have to be spend lunch with the kids because that's what a dedicated teacher does. Um, I was not as productive during my planning periods because then I wanted to talk to people. Um, I wanted that break, but building in that break for myself has allowed me to be more productive with the rest of my day And it's not that I'm avoiding work that I don't bring home. I just get it done. Um, So again, it's that work smart, not hard. And it it took several years to figure that out.
1: Yeah. It seems like what you've been talking about is like compartmentalizing a little bit more like your time and parts of the day and even parts of the week. And then also being more intentional about what you do during certain times of the day.
0: Yeah. I think intentional, um, is a really great word to use. And, um, you know, my my school does a lot with mindfulness. We start teaching it from kindergarten onward with, you know, emotional regulation and, you know, what does it feel like if I'm angry and up to high school in terms of, you know, stress management. And so, you know, that catches on with the faculty as well. And I think being very mindful of, you know, what am I doing right now? Is this, is this going to make me feel good later? Um, is this going to, you know, waste my time? Because sometimes it's fine to waste time. Sometimes, especially at lunch, you know, I need five minutes to sit on social media and scroll and just decompress. And that's fine because that's, it's intentional mindlessness. Um, But to just be aware of what you're doing, I think just as as humans, we waste a lot of time each day. I mean, I know I'm guilty ever since um, the iPhone came out with the screen time feature. Like I was horrified at how much time I spend on my phone and we're all guilty of that. But um, you know, at work I started thinking about it. Okay, well what else do I do mindlessly that maybe is, contributing to my stress because I'm not using my time wisely. Um, so that, that intentionality and being mindful of it, um, has really been helpful. Mm
1: -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I have just started kind of compartmentalizing a little bit more and being more intentional and I don't bring work home anymore and it has helped so much. And I found that the thing that I spent the most time doing was just walking around my school during my planning periods. Like I try and print something from my room, Walk to the workroom. Oh no, it didn't print. Walk back. Go to the bathroom. Oh no, this one's taken. Go to another bathroom. Oh no, it's taken. Okay, mm. I'm going to walk back. To, like I'm gonna walk back to my classroom and wait. Like, and forty minutes would just go by. And I'm like, what have I been doing this whole time? Oh, I've just right. been walking around the whole school.
0: Right. And you know what? Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need to move, especially um, if I have two block periods back to back. I get sleepy. And so I've learned you got to go on a 10-minute walk. Um, otherwise, I will fall asleep, and that's embarrassing. Um, but, you know, realizing and I think, um, you know, learning to be more aware of what are the habits, you know, because we're not, we're not perfect, and what are our own habits that are maybe making our lives more difficult? We work in a challenging profession, um, but that doesn't mean that all of our own habits are always on point. And I think being mindful and reflective of, of how are your own habits making your life easier or harder um it doesn't mean it doesn't excuse any of the other factors that that make teaching really challenging because it is challenging but there's ways to make it there's ways to help make it a little easier on yourself just like I always tell my students don't procrastinate you know if you procrastinate you're going to be very stressed out the night before and they say yeah yeah yeah, I know and they do it anyway and as adults we're really no better we're just a little bit older (laughs) Mm -hmm. so um you know practicing what we try to teach
1: Yeah, definitely. And apart from kind of like socializing during your planning times, what are some other habits that you've learned to change or develop?
0: Um, I don't take my phone with me. I don't have my own classroom. I share. And so um, if I know that I have a lot of work to do, my phone will stay in my desk and I leave the room. I leave my phone there so I'm not even remotely tempted to text anybody, to check anything. I'm completely engaged in work. Um, So that is something that really helps me because if if I leave my phone away, that's a solid 55 minutes of work that I know is going to get done. Um, I try to go to locations where I'm not going to be around people who will distract me. Um, Cause you know, there's some people who just like to talk and that's fine. And sometimes I'm okay with that. And sometimes I think, no, I need to be somewhere that's going to be a little more secluded. So finding those spaces um, within the building, if it's possible that maximize my productivity. Um, being smart about when I do certain things uh if I need to run a bunch of copies Friday afternoon. Stay after 20 minutes on Friday afternoon, nobody's there, nobody's at the copiers. I can run them both at one time. <laughs> so, you know, versus Monday morning when everybody is there and they jam and then everybody gets mad. So, you know, just learning little habits like that.
1: Yeah, I love that. There's definitely a lot of wisdom to like what you just shared because You got to figure out the best time to like get everything done. And then also like think about where you are mentally and like what you're capable of doing at that moment. Like I do all my copies during my planning period Monday morning because I, my brain doesn't work and all I need to do is just take all the papers and stick them in the printer and then just run them.
0: And then I've done all my copies. Yeah.
1: And then like, yeah, you got to figure out like what time works best for you, like physically and also mentally, like where is your brain at too?
0: Yeah, like I know if I have last block free and it's a Friday, I'm not getting anything done. I would love to say I'll grade a class of papers, but realistically, if it's a Friday and I have the last block free, I'm probably going to sit and talk to the teacher I share a room with. And so you know what? I accept that. That's fine. I I, I kind of factor that into my workload time like, okay, Friday, I have last block free, probably not going to get anything done. And so I, I plan that as sort of a light work period. Maybe I'll organize something. Um, and I can chat and there's, there's value to that as well. You know, the, it's important, I think, to find the value in what you do. Um, it's not always, and it's, and to allow yourself that break from, from nose to the grindstone of everything you're supposed to be doing at all times, because we we can't, we can't function like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, we definitely need to take away that expectation that we should be super productive every single minute of every single day. Like, we have to understand that we do need a break. Like, I love that you kind of sometimes plan mindless blocks of time where you don't have to think because it's inevitable. Like, it's going to happen. And I definitely went through that period where, like, I'm a perfectionist. I want to make everything perfect and always have all my habits be so consistent. And it's physically impossible and mentally impossible. And yes. then after I kind of waste away a chunk of time where I was supposed to be doing something, I'm like, oh, no, I'm terrible. Right. I'm right. unproductive. I'm lazy. And right. you got to be like compassionate with yourself, too.
0: Yeah. And that's a really good point, because I feel like, you know, you can't be an, edu- an educator and not be empathetic, right? We are empathetic to our students. We practice empathy all day. But I don't think teachers are very good at practicing empathy on themselves. Um, I think that we understand you know that not all not all students are the same and that we can hold someone to high standards but also you know not be crushed if they don't reach those standards but help them try again that's what we do and yet for ourselves if we don't reach that standard we set it's immediately crushing um and i don't know if that i mean i that's definitely a personal thing but i seem to have found it with with a lot of people that i that have also entered education and my theory is it's because you know, you don't go into education if you hated school, (laughs) you go into education, if if, probably if you at least had a positive or or neutrally positive uh, relationship with school. And so, um, you know, probably people who become teachers were at least average to good students. And um, it's difficult to to feel like you're not, you're not, you know, being successful. And this is a field where you're not always going to be successful, because you're working with humans. And it's hard to sometimes feel successful when, when the little humans are rebelling and that's just what it is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that you brought the word successful into this conversation because that's also something that I think we need to talk a little bit more about what success looks like in teaching. Right. Like there are so many different definitions of that from some Mm -hmm. people, it's our test scores, some people it's. Um, you know, how are your kids doing emotionally and socially? Like everyone has their different definitions of success. And as I'm closing out, like this is going to be my last year teaching. I've Mm -hmm. been able to kind of whittle away all the other voices and figure out what I consider to be success and understand that it is not the test scores. But what do you consider to be success for you as a teacher?
0: I mean, I'm a social studies teacher, so my goal for them is that they become engaged concerned informed citizens and whether that's through studying current events and civics and government in 12th grade or whether it's through studying you know history in 10th grade um i want them to be more informed engaged citizens when they leave my classroom than when they entered um and i want them to to continue to practice that so it's a little easier to see that with my 12th graders because i get them registered to vote and we talk about that um but, but watching them, you know, in their relationships and, you know, I had a student come to me last week who was having a peer problem and, you know, a student had, had reached out and been physically violent with him and he was very upset. He didn't punch back. And then he said, he, you know, he was called names. He felt like he had been a wuss and we just finished studying Gandhi. And I said, all right, so what's the point of nonviolence? So, so we talked about nonviolence as a sign of strength instead of as a sign of weakness. And so, you know, eventually the student, you know, ended up coming back to me and saying, you know, I think nonviolence is really the best path to take because there's no way that I can look bad in the situation if I don't punch back. And I'm like, exactly. So to me, taking, taking those lessons and applying them interpersonally um, is the most important thing when I see my kids being successful. They're not all going to love history. That's fine. Um, and they're not all going to be social studies teachers. That's fine. But if they use what they're learning to become better people, If I see them be kind to each other, um, if they they learn nonviolence, if they learn to stand up uh, for someone who's weak, if they learn to stand up for injustice, those are the lessons I want them to take out of history. And none of that shows up on the standardized test. And I don't care, because to me, that is way more important than whatever they get on the test.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we're not teaching a bunch of robots. We're not teaching only students like they are first and foremost, also human beings like right. just as we are first and foremost human beings and then teachers. So right. I completely agree. Like what I kind of decided was by the time my students leave kindergarten, I want them to understand their emotions. I want them to have a love of learning, feel safe at school. And if I've done that, then I've been successful. And right. maybe some of them do well on their standardized tests. And maybe some of them don't, maybe some of them can read at a higher level than others, but in the end, if they come to school feeling safe with a smile on their face, knowing that they can trust their teachers and be able to communicate, then that's all I wanted them to do. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that I think that I would argue that a lot of teachers have similar goals. The question is, what do, you know, the other stakeholders have as, as signs of success in education? And when you've got a teacher who's you know, passionate about social, emotional development and, and teaching kids how to stand up, you know, to, to injustice and that sort of thing. But you've got a district that wants you to raise the testing, you know, percentage to 86%. That's so challenging, you know? And it's like, you, you don't see what happens in my classroom. You don't see the amazing growth these kids make over the year. And on one hand, that makes me sad. I'm like, I wish, I wish that the people who who judge and ridicule teachers could be in our classrooms and see what we see with these kids, because that's, that's the amazing part. Um, but I don't care what my kids get on their test. I I prep them for it because I want them to be successful. And that's part of my responsibility to, to successful in the conventional sense in terms of doing well. Um, but that matters so little to me. And I always tell them that the day of the test that I don't care what you get on that test because what you learned can't be measured. And inevitably I think that reduces some of their test anxiety and they usually do Okay.
1: Yeah, that's great. Do you find that a lot of your kids do have a lot of test anxiety?
0: Yes, there is a lot of test anxiety, um, which is interesting because as someone who has generalized anxiety, I was always anxious about everything in my life except tests. You put a a bubble sheet in front of me and I went to my Zen place. Um, So it is very astonishing to me how many of my kids have such severe test anxiety. Um, And it manifests in very different ways. You know, some kids become... Uh, very needy, and and they show up ten minutes before, and they want me quiz me, quiz me, quiz me. They want me to review with them immediately, and they know everything. They're fine. These are kids who have a 96 average. Um, sometimes they just simply don't perform well. This is a student who's done all their homework, who participates in class, who knows everything, and they go and get a 40% on the test because they see that test and they go blank. Um, some kids won't come to school. There's a lot of avoidance. Kids won't come to school. Um, We have more and more kids getting 504 plans for anxiety so they can test in a a smaller environment with reduced stimulation. So it manifests in very different ways, but there's a lot more of it than there was, you know, I graduated high school 10 years ago. So um, it's a little crazy to me.
1: Mm -hmm. I was kind of the same way. Like I would do really, really well on tests because I was like, okay, question, answer, fill in the bubble, question, answer, fill in the bubble. Like everything is very... Rigid yes, exactly. and structured, and I was like, "I can handle this." And then outside yes. of that, I'm like, "Ah." <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned having anxiety, and you've been talking about mental health. What does mm-hmm. how does anxiety influence your teaching? I guess, and then also vice versa. How does being a teacher impact yeah. your anxiety?
0: Um, I definitely think in some ways, um, having anxiety makes me a better teacher because I'm very organized. You know, anxiety is you are always prepared for the worst. And in teaching, that's not always a bad thing. (laughs) So anxiety leads me to overprepare. And in teaching, that means I'm caught unaware fewer times. So I think especially in my first couple of years of teaching, when there's always a lot of surprises because you never know what those kids are going to say or do. Um, Because of my high levels of anxiety, I had already run through every worst case scenario And whatever the kids threw at me was nowhere near as bad as what my brain had thrown at me. Um, So I can always make things so much worse than they will be in reality. So that has been helpful in a sense. Um, It's been challenging because, you know, anxiety also can impact, you know, my eating and my sleeping. And when those, you know, first couple levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, you know, are struggling, it's hard to give your all in the classroom. Um, when my anxiety gets out of control, I don't, I don't always eat my food very well. And so then I feel very weak and, you know, there's nothing like being hangry in front of a class of 27 10th graders at two 30 in the afternoon. So, um, that has made it really difficult, um, at times and also sleep. Um, I've struggled a lot with insomnia. Um, I was always one of those kids who would lay there and, and calculate backwards from the time I had to get up and say, well, if I fall asleep now, I can get seven hours of sleep. But if I fall asleep, then I'll get six hours and 27 minutes of sleep. And I'm now one of those adults who does the same thing. Um, so uh, that has uh, definitely made things challenging. And, you know, I always tell myself, well, if worst comes to worse, you can, you can call in in the morning. But then there's always the question of, oh, then you got to do subplans. So it's better to go to work. Um, so a little bit of, you know, I, I've done my own therapy with this, but also just experience and saying, you know what? If I don't sleep tonight, I will be tired tomorrow. And I'll get through it because it's not going to kill me. There have been days where I've gone to work on very little sleep and I have been very tired and I've gotten through it. Um, and so sort of that, I guess it's, I guess you'd call it radical acceptance. Like I don't really like how this is going to turn out, but I accept it and I know I can get through it. Um, in terms of, you know, when it starts to affect, affect my eating, um, I put myself on a schedule you have to eat a snack. You have to eat something every three hours. If you're not really hungry, you have to have a smoothie. Um, and that just allows me to, to keep my energy up so that I can cope with the kids. Um, I used to get very anxious for um, observations. Um, like I said, we have administrators who observe us three times a year. And when I knew it was an announced one for my first three or four years, I would be physically ill. Um, and that was really rough. Uh, because I felt like even though I understood and I never took the numbers on the evaluations that seriously, um, I was more worried about the comments. You know, what would they really think that I was a good teacher and therefore a good human being? Um, but again, just sort of the desensitization from the experience I've learned. You know what? Sometimes an observation goes well. Sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't mean I'm not a good teacher, just like if the kids don't do well on a test, it doesn't mean they're stupid. Um, that's not how I measure success for them. And that's not how I measure success for me. Um, but, you know, again, just making sure that I I make the time to, to take care of myself because when my anxiety starts to really spike, there's usually some reason for it. And if I can identify that reason and address it, then hopefully it doesn't affect my teaching.
1: Yeah. Um, a lot of what you've kind of talked about with coping with anxiety and also being able to find balance it seems like you've done a lot of self-reflection and have a lot of self-awareness of just Mm -hmm. like signs that you feel like, you know, you might be getting anxious or knowing that when you are anxious, here are the things that you need to stay consistent with, with eating and making sure you have a snack. Um, And what are some steps or maybe people or things that have helped you with that self-awareness? Well,
0: one of the things I came up with a couple of years ago was I sort of have like a checklist. So if I start to feel like things are spinning out of control or if I feel like I'm going to start crying for no reason, which at this point of the year is, is fair game. Um, it is may after all. Um, I always ask myself five questions. I say, did you, did you take your medicine? Because I, I do take medication for anxiety. And if I don't take it, I start to feel side effects. So did you take your medication? Have you eaten? Have you drank enough water? Because I also think teachers tend to be very dehydrated because we don't have time to pee. Um, have you, what was my other one? Oh, have you left the house? Like if I'm home, um, like, have I, have I gotten out and about, um, and have you slept? So I kind of checked those basic needs, you know, medication, food, water, socializing and sleep. And, and usually if one of those is not off, then, then it's an environmental issue. But more often than not, one of those like basic needs is not being met. Yeah. And it was sort yeah. of trial and error. I just realized more often than not. I would be hysterical, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, and then realize, you know what, I haven't drank, I didn't drink any water today, that could be the issue. Or, you know, it's three o'clock, and I'm teary-eyed, and I don't understand why, and I'm shaking, oh, you know what, you didn't take your medicine today. And so, enough of those times, and I realized there was a pattern to when things just started to feel out of control, and it was usually one of those five.
1: Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I think the first two to three times that I cried in front of my students this year were all days where I had not eaten lunch, either because yes. I had a meeting during lunch or I like had to deal with a student or I had to do something. And then all of a sudden it would be like 3 p.m. and I'm like, oh, bawling in front of my little 5 year olds who right. are like, I don't know what's happening. And then I would get home and then open the fridge and I'm like, oh, I didn't eat right. lunch today. Probably right. should eat lunch every single day now so I don't have yes. a mental breakdown in front of my students. Yes.
0: Eating lunch every single day is very important. And, you know, I've taken that back and I, I get up at I usually eat breakfast at like 530 in the morning and I don't eat lunch until 1130. So it's a six hour span. And I have finally, finally learned that I need a snack in there. And if I miss my morning snack, same thing starts to happen by about 1030 or 11 o'clock. I'm like, oh, missed my snack. I'm getting hangry again. And my, my kids know like they will walk in and I'm eating a granola bar and I, I give them the one minute sign and they go away. I get to eat my snack. So, um they have learned, and I, again it's, it's, I'm trying to teach by by demonstration that I need to meet my needs and go do your warm up and I'll
1: be with you in three minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you are feeling anxious, what does that usually look like or feel like?
0: Um, for me, anxiety is a very physical thing. Um, I have a, a lot of like phobia centered around illness, so I'm always afraid that I'm sick. Um, you know, a headache, ter- obviously a headache turns into a brain tumor because, you know, what else is WebMD for? Um, you know, a slight, you know, that stomach discomfort. Oh my gosh, I'm going to throw up. And, you know, I have this paralyzing fear of throwing up in my classroom, having seen plenty of other teachers do it because they won't stay home when they're sick. Um, so that's, you know, usually anxiety is nausea for me. Um, and so kind of depending on, on the degree of how bad that is. I have several times ha- had a full blown panic attack, while I was teaching and that was that was rough um it maybe at this point it happens once or twice a year or so um and I sort of look at it as just a fluke like this is this is my brain's weird chemistry you know blowing a circuit and okay I'm going to get through this I'm not dying I feel like I'm dying but I'm not um and how can I get through this and so I've learned, you know, to sometimes alter lesson plans and instead of doing something directly, I'll have the kids work in partners so that I can sit down, um so that I don't feel so short of breath. Um eating something or drinking something is helpful. I always keep mints in my desk. Um, you know, mints says something, it's it's I don't know, it's a common anxiety trick to suck on a peppermint. Um it just the strong flavor just sort of helps recenter me, so I'll I'll pop a mint. Um I've never needed to actually leave my classroom. And I think just pushing through it has sort of convinced me that I I won't have to. Um, But it it has gotten, gotten pretty tough at points. Um, But just knowing that, that I can, I can alter the plan that I'm, I'm in charge and I don't have to be standing in front of them feeling like I'm going to die. It can be altered and that's okay.
1: Yeah. I love kind of your mentality of like, okay, this is happening Um, Because I've struggled with depression a lot. And usually my first year of teaching, whenever it flared up, I would be like, oh, no, this is so horrible. Like, what's wrong with me? I need to fix this. I need to do this to fix it. And now I've gotten to a point where I'm like, oh, okay, this is just how it is. I'm going to sit down. I'm not going to do too much today. Right. Um, It's
0: one of those days. And I think that's the challenge of, of, you know, any mental illness in general is it makes you feel like it's the end of the world. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's how anxiety and depression function. Um, and so whether you're teaching or not teaching, um, to fight back and say, it's not the end of the world, it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. And what can I do to make my life a little bit easier while I cope with this? You know, just like if you have a cold, you don't force yourself to go run 10 miles. You know, if you're having a flare up of anxiety or depression, what can you do to make your day a little bit easier?
1: Mm -hmm. I love the comparison of like mental illness and physical illness, because there's definitely an imbalance between how people perceive them. Huge. Um, And do you, have you encountered that at your school or schools that you have worked at?
0: Um, you know, my current school has has a really good focus on mental health. Again, with with the mindfulness component that they bring in so young, um, there's there's pretty strong attention to it. Um, Previous schools that I've worked at while there was a lot of attention to the students' mental health needs, it was very neglected for the faculty. Um, We had a, a series of tragedies that kind of struck within a semester, two student deaths, and they were very unexpected. So, you know, obviously it was just shock and grief throughout the whole community. And there was a lot of, you know, communication and meetings about how do we support the kids, how do we support the kids, but there was no talk about how do we support the staff. And we were on the front lines, like we were the ones be sorry, Kat, um, we were the ones who had become impromptu grief counselors while we were also grieving. Um, and so, you know, that brought up a ton for any of us who had experienced loss, which was all of us, you know, we all knew these, these kids as well. Um, and it was coming up on the holidays and it was, it was, it was terrible. And so, yeah, I think that there was a lot of, uh, neglect in terms of concern for faculty and staff mental health. So as a result, teachers began calling in sick because either they they mentally needed a day or they became physically ill. So then they were you know targeted for calling in sick too many times and um, it was just really became a vicious cycle and and that was really unfortunate.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I
0: think that you know again in education the concern is is the kids and it should be the kids because that's what it's about. Um, but we also need to look at especially in times of tragedy, how does this affect your teachers as well? Um and, and in that one instance it was not it was not handled well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with like, you know, education is first and foremost, we need to do what's best for the students. Yeah, but I absolutely. think there it often comes at an expense, like expense of the teachers. Like it's not mutually exclusive. It's not that no. we either prioritize students or we prioritize teachers. There needs to be a way to find balance because ultimately what's best for teachers is what's best for students.
0: Sorry, I'm trying to reposition this. Um, no, that's okay. right. And, and if you, if you take care of your teachers, then they are better able to take care of their students. And if you, if your teachers are not taken care of them, then we can't take care of the kids because we can't take care of the kids when we're absent because we called in sick because there was just too much going on, you know, then they have a substitute who, you know, at least in my experience may or may not be anywhere close to competent.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you feel comfortable talking about mental health at your school?
0: Um, like, like, you know, among faculty and staff at my current school. Yes. Um, you know, because of the experiences that I had, in my previous school, um, I'm a little bit reluctant to become too close to my current colleagues. Um, and that's because I think the boundaries at my previous school were so poor, um, personal and professional were just crossed constantly, um, and, and dangerously so. And so as a result of that, um, I I haven't personally, However, I don't feel that it's a particularly hostile environment for it. It's just not something that I have chosen to really engage in because of my previous experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, yeah. I, I choose not to bring a lot of my personal life in um, really at all beyond the fact that, you know, I live here and I have cats and I'm doing this this
1: weekend. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about those experiences that happened at your previous school that made you averse to being so open, um,
0: you know, I think this is something that again like i like I mentioned, it was almost like you know we we joked about it being like being in combat, and we were we were very close and we hung out together a lot, and that's cool, but when what happens on the weekend then gets brought into the classroom and everybody's mad at Sue because she didn't come out this weekend, so she doesn't like anyone and she must be stuck up, so no one'll talk to her at work, it was like being in high school and that sort of thing becomes very toxic. Or if, um, you know, vice versa, if there was a professional disagreement, then that person might not be invited out the following weekend. So the personal and professional boundaries were crossed a lot, and it caused drama. You know, it was it was high school drama, and it was very frustrating, and it, it did become toxic. And a huge part of the mentality was was perpetuated by, by the faculty and staff and by the administration under the guise of, well, we're all one big family. And I started to really think about that. And I started to really reject it because we're not family, right? We're not family at a workplace. You can, you can support each other. You can, you know, um, be there for each other. You can work excellent. You can work really, really well together, but it's not your family. You have a family and you have a personal life. And when you enmesh the two of them it leads to teachers not taking care of themselves because well you can't avoid a work event because then you're ditching your family you know you can't refuse to chaperone the prom because then you're abandoning your family and and it really you know um sort of made that that toxic martyr mindset a lot worse
1: yeah taking away those boundaries ultimately mixes professional and personal lives and The whole point of self-care and a large part of it is being able to detach from work and find something outside of it. And when your whole personal life is filled with people from work, that's impossible.
0: Exactly. And Mm -hmm. again, these were wonderful people. They're people who I now choose to socialize with. I still largely socialize with people from, from my old job because they're great people. But I really like that my socialization and my work life are no longer enmeshed. Mm -hmm. Um, and I like that if I choose to not go to a school event that I'm not going to hear crap about it when we go out to the bars, (laughs) you know, um, because that, that is where I think it gets really toxic in terms of crossing boundaries.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so this previous school was the rural school in the rural district that you worked at, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've worked in a private school in a rural district Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. in a public school in a suburban area. What are some differences that you've noticed throughout all, I guess, all three of the schools that you've worked at?
0: Yeah. So the private school was, um, you know, money talked. And I think that's that's something that any teacher will tell you in a private school. Um, I know, you know, in some states, private schools are awesome. In my state, I feel like private schools are not that great because you're not part of the public pension system, which is good, um, and you're not unionized. And, and those are two things that I think are really important for educators. So we had no union, we had no pension, um, and the salary was incredibly low. Like I started off teaching and I was making 28000 And like I had a master's degree. So that was very, very low pay. Um, and I think the highest paid teacher topped out at like sixty. It was very low. Um, so, and there was also um, very much great, there was a lot of great inflation. You know, every kid had to pass because parents were paying for that education. Um, and so, granted, while well, most of the kids passed on their own, because they also would not accept students who, who couldn't pass, um, you occasionally had a kid who, by, by laziness or by other circumstance, wasn't passing for whatever, for whatever reason. And those grades magically got rewritten. Um, and so that was very frustrating to me. And I disagreed with it on an ideological level. And um, that's something that I think is more common in private schools, because there's that idea that the parents are paying for it. And, and they're paying um, for that education, and they are entitled to it. It's something I, I personally disagree with. Um, but I think it's, it's out there. Um, you know, working in a, in a rural school really opened my eyes because you hear a lot about city schools. You hear a lot about the needs of, of urban populations and urban schools. The thing is, rural schools are no different. The houses are just further apart. Um, you have the exact same problems. The generational poverty, um, the violence, the drug abuse, um, the neglect, um, kids coming to school hungry, on Monday mornings, if you walked into the hall where they were all kind of waiting for the bell rang, you would just get a, a waft of stale cigarette smoke. And it just really reminded me that that their homes were really different from what I had grown up in. Um, you know, I think only 17% of the parents in that district had graduated high school. So, you know, you had a population of kids who came from parents who had not finished high school, who didn't always understand why they were there, what the point was, um, and who also, like I said, have sometimes had bigger problems. Um, you know, parents in jail being raised by grandparents, um, you know, drug abuse in the home, physical, mental, sexual abuse, like just just crazy, horrible, horrible things. And they disclose to teachers, um, just like they would, would in an urban school, just like kids do everywhere. Um, and there's so few resources. There's no tax base. The houses are far apart. It's farmland. Um, you know, we had a lot of students who were migrants, um, a lot of students who came up from from Mexico to pick apples in the orchards. Um, They'd be there for the harvest season. They would go back to Mexico and they would come back in the spring. And they were still expected to take the same state tests as everybody else. And it was, it's not even fair to them. Um, And then their attendance would be held against them when their family was going home to be with, with the rest of their family. So, you know, just just a thousand and one little tragedies every single day. Um, with that being said, there were parts of it that I just loved because um, you could you could expose the kids to so much because their worldview was so limited. You know, their sense of a big city was you know the next small city, a few roads, you know, a few hour hour and a half away. Their their sense of a city was Manhattan. You show them pictures of you know of Tokyo. You show them pictures. Of Johannesburg and South Africa, and their their minds were just blown. Um, and so, you know, getting to talk to them about that was was really awesome because they didn't have the same scope that a lot of uh, students did in, in wealthier areas. Um, and they also were really appreciative. They were. It was not uncommon for for teachers to be the most highly educated person that that students and their parents would come across um, for for quite a while. And so the parents were always incredibly grateful. They, they treated us very well. Um, the students were, were grateful and they were very aware of the education that we had attained to then teach them. Um, they understood that we worked hard. Um, and you know, although their behavior didn't always reflect it, um, I think they did respect us and they respected the work that we did. And, um, you know, I had kids say to me, miss, miss, I don't know how you do it. How, I don't know how you do this every day. And so they, they really did understand it. Um, and I did love those kids and I miss them and I I keep in touch with some of them now. And I think that's the joy of teaching older kids. Um, Mm -hmm. but the challenges in rural schools are unfortunately something I feel like is really neglected when we discuss the challenges in education, because it's a very quiet desperation. Um, but it's something that happens throughout a lot of this country.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I don't know much about rural education and it's so interesting to hear that there are so many of these same problems, but all everyone does talk about are the big cities and the inner cities Um, and all the initiatives are going into these larger cities when there are millions and millions of students who live in these smaller towns who are experiencing the same things.
0: Right. And, you know, it it was a small school. It was, uh, you know, combined junior, senior high school one teacher per subject per grade level. So I taught all of the 10th graders, which meant I knew all of them. And um, so that could be a positive thing and could be a negative thing. Your opportunities for professional development are somewhat more limited when you're in a small school like that. Um, on the other hand, it's it's cool to be able to sort of be in control of your whole curriculum and not have to, you know, make sure you're online with some other teacher. Um, yeah, I, it, it just, it frustrates me that the same issues, you know, that, that get a lot of attention in urban areas are so neglected. Um, we had two school counselors and one social worker and one psychologist to service the whole school. We could have used four times that and it still wouldn't have been enough um, because of all the trauma that these kids came to school with. And I think the assumption is, well, they're living in the countryside. What's the trauma? Well, the trauma is poverty and, and all the challenges that come with poverty. And whether you're in the city or whether you're in the country, the kids aren't exempt from that. And um, they desperately needed those services, and they're not being met.
1: Yeah, and how did teaching in that environment and being around all of these students and seeing all of this poverty and their struggles, how did that impact you?
0: It made me a better teacher. Um, I walked in there to teach 9th, 10th, and 11th grade, and I had no textbook. There was a textbook, but it was very out of date, and it was above the majority of the kids' reading level. And I thought, well, how do I teach with no textbook? And I had to make everything. I had to make all of my own materials. I had to beg, borrow, and steal what I could. Um, When you have so few resources, you have to get really good really fast. Um, When the majority of the students you have are reading at least two grades below grade level, if not three or four, you have to figure out how to take content that's tested on a 10th or 11th grade level but make it accessible on a 5th or 6th grade reading level. And still have them be able to pass that state test at the end of the year. Um, so I, I have no regrets about my time there because it made me a better educator. I had to be resourceful. I had to be creative. Um, my lessons could not be sort of sit and deliver because they wouldn't sit for it. <laughs> they, they couldn't sit for it. I had to learn to be very engaging very quickly. Um, and it was it was definitely a trial by fire. Um, and I think, you know, I think I passed. Uh, But it was hard in terms of the amount of trauma they came with. I think it was really eye opening. Um, I think the most important thing that I learned was, you know, where I grew up, everybody went to college and everybody went to a four year college. And if you didn't go to a four year college, you just didn't talk about it. But in this rural community, very few kids went to a four year college. Some went to a two year college. A lot went into a trade or into the military. And and that was really not acceptable where I grew up but, you know, getting to know these kids and loving these kids and seeing them grow and seeing them, you know, attend trade skill programs where they learned how to be a mechanic or they learned cosmetology or they learned auto body repair. And then they graduated at 18 and they had a job. And I started to really think that's awesome. And and I gained this respect, um, for that path in life that i never had before. Um, one of my favorite kids, he, uh, came in one day carrying this big, muddy duffel bag. And I said, what you got in there? And he dropped it on my desk and dust exploded everywhere. And he said, I got the engine from my four-wheeler. And I said, <laughs> oh, okay. And he wanted to show me. And he had to show me every part and how it worked. So I learned about engines. Um, those kids taught me a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I would tell them, hey, my car is making this funny noise. And 10 of them would want to look at it right away. And I said, you're not touching my car. Um, but they would offer me advice. So I really definitely learned to appreciate that you don't have to go to a four-year college and it's not the right path for everybody. And I think that's something that, um, that our country is, is now regretting that we don't have enough people working in trades. Um, and so working in in this school really taught me that trades are valuable and that, you know, kids can have a good life, even if they don't go to a four-year college. And, you know, some of the kids that I, I loved best ended up, doing military and two-year college and, and technical school and not a four-year liberal arts college the way I did. And they're doing great. And um, that was really valuable for me to learn.
1: Yeah, I grew up in a similar environment as you where um, all I, I knew I was absolutely going to college. Everyone around sure. me was going to college. It was expected. And the school that I work at is, our mission is to and through college. And we're working with the population that we work with, the majority of our students' parents have not gone to college. A lot of them do work in trades. And it's important to have college be an opportunity. Like we need to give them that opportunity. But there is definitely, there is not a need to make it the only metric of success. Again, like there are so many different definitions of that. And in doing so, like when we are saying college is the only way to be successful. Like we are telling these kids that what their parents are doing is not valuable and is not exactly. important. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I think that's fundamentally really disrespectful and really elitist. And um, like I said, I, I was really sort of regretful of the way that I had spoken about, about trades and about community colleges when I was young. And I'm so grateful to, to my kids that I had at that school for opening my eyes and showing me that there's another way. Um and now that I'm at, at a different school where it's much more for your college track I have a few kids who are not planning to do that and one of them was very challenging early in the year he said I'm not going to I'm not going to college I'm going into the Navy Seals and I said that's incredible you, he had already been accepted to the Seals you know early in the year um and he said do you think I should go to college and I said not if you don't want to don't, don't go to college if you don't want to like if you if you want to go to college it's expensive and you should want to do it and that student and I have gotten along great all year. He's a student mm-hmm. who struggles academically. And when he gets out, he's going to be an amazing Navy SEAL. Like, we will all be safer because he is a Navy SEAL. And and that's amazing. And I'm really so grateful to my kids for opening my eyes to that. I think, you know, the fact that we can learn from our students is something that's that's just really a valuable part of our job.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, people see it as a one-way street where we are the ones who are teaching our students everything we teach them all this information, but it definitely goes two ways. Like no, working with I so
0: much.
1: Yeah. Like working with five-year-olds, like they teach you so much about just like unconditional love and yeah. forgiveness. <laughs> like I could yell at a student and then 10 minutes later, they're coming up to me to give me a hug and they're like, I love you. <laughs> and there's so much forgiveness and compassion and lack of judgment that I see from yeah. my students. Like I have a couple of high need students who have, very erratic behaviors in my class and the rest of my kids are just like oh yeah he's just doing it again that, that's yeah him. that's just how it is and they're accepting of it and they help them when they see that they're about to have a meltdown and I have learned so much from my students because you see these little five-year-olds who haven't had that much exposure to judgment in the world and they have all of this innocence that yeah. we've lost throughout, you know, becoming adults and it's taught right. me so much about like trying to hold on to those values that they always have. Right. No, mm. I totally agree. Yeah. Um and you mentioned doing a lot of trial and error, so I'm curious, what is something that you tried that like completely blew up in your face or failed?
0: Oh, I have failed at so many things. <laughs> um Well, you mean in terms of like pedagogy or in terms of Could
1: be anything
0: anything? Well, I guess the one that comes to mind, this was more, you know, this was the point that I realized I was no younger, no longer as young as I thought I was, because I was trying to be hip and use the lingo that all the kids were using, which, by the way, is a terrible idea. So this was, I don't know, three, four years ago. It was in that rural district. And uh, one of the kids said, hey, you know, miss, what are you going to do this weekend? And I said, oh, you know, Netflix and chill because I thought it was this awesome, hip new phrase to encapsulate what I did every weekend, which was lay on the couch, watch some reruns of Friends on Netflix, and pet my cats. Do you know what Netflix and chill means?
1: Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I do know. But I think I used to ha- also have that same impression until I saw it being used a lot more in memes and like more right. on social media. And I was like, oh, this doesn't mean what I thought it meant. <laughs>
0: Correct. So... I thought the kids were like, really? And I said, yeah. So the next class comes in and asks me the same thing. What are you doing this weekend? And I thought, well, how nice. I'm making these connections with the kids. And I said, oh, you know, Netflix and chill. And they were like, huh, fascinating. So the same thing kept happening all day. And I thought, wow, these kids are like so connected with me. So just sort of by coincidence that weekend, I, I was on Facebook and I saw one of those memes that used the phrase Netflix and chill. And I thought, well, that's strange. So I decided to go to Urban Dictionary and look up the phrase, and I learned that it meant to have casual sex without your parents knowing that you were doing it. So I was horrified. I screamed. My roommate came running in. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, I just told 90s teenagers that I was going to have casual sex. I, I, I got to fix this. So I went in on Monday, and I stood in front of the class, and I said, I, I need to, to tell you something. I, I made a statement on Friday, and I didn't entirely know the meaning of what I was saying. So they burst out laughing because they all knew what I was talking about. <laughs> so I said, you know, when I said Netflix and chill, what I meant was – so I had to do this four times. Um, they thought it was hysterical. The, the rumor spread. Everybody told everybody. And finally, like three weeks later, the principal comes up to me in the hallway. And again, I was a new teacher. And he said, oh, hey, you know, hey, I had to tell you something. I'm like, yeah, what? And he said, Netflix and chill. And I was <gasps> horrified. So <laughs> – that was when I decided I was no longer going to try to speak like the kids. Um, and that was when, when they schooled me. So that went horribly wrong. And, um, that class has now graduated, but one of them recently, you know, messaged me to tell me how they had done at college their first year and said, Hey, do you remember when you said Netflix and chill? I said, yes, thank you very much for that. I do remember it.
1: And you know, um... (laughs) they're going to be telling that story over and over again. too. Oh, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So that went horribly wrong. Um, yeah, that was pretty bad.
1: <laughs> Lesson learned, always look things up on Urban Dictionary.
0: Always look things up on Urban Dictionary before you say them to a room full of
1: teenagers. Mm-hmm. That's great. And yeah. what what is, um, I mean, you've been teaching for a while, so I'm sure you have a lot of these, but what are some moments of like joy that you've had with your students or things that you think of to keep you motivated?
0: Oh my gosh, there's just so many. I mean... Mm-hmm. I, one that comes to mind was was last year was you know my last year in the rural district. At that point, I, I knew I was leaving, um, and it was the day of the of the state test. And so, I had shown up at six a.m. I had brought donuts and coffee and bagels and juice and breakfast for the kids. And forty five kids showed up to review, which was more than half of the kids I was teaching. So we're crammed in my classroom. We were reviewing. I had them in circles doing games. And just looking around the room and seeing them all there, you know, eating and drinking, knowing they had a good breakfast and and quizzing each other and encouraging each other. And then with 10 minutes to go, I cut it off and I said, "Okay, we're done studying. And I had everybody get in a circle and we did some yoga and we did some stretches and we did some breathing and we did some positive affirmations. And I said, I want you all to close your eyes. And I said, I want you to think about you know, a funny memory that you have from this year. And I want you to to think about something that you learned, whether or not it was in this class, what's something that you learned this year that you're proud of? And so I kept my eyes open and I I looked around that circle of kids and just seeing them all standing there with their eyes closed, you know, powdered sugar on their faces, um, knowing that they were all nervous going into this test. They were were trying and they were all had their eyes closed and they were smiling and they were thinking about something they were proud of. Um, That was a really awesome moment.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, well, it's time to kind of start of, start wrapping up a little bit. Um, and I've been asking everyone, if you had to give advice to someone who is a teacher, who is struggling and having mm-hmm. a hard time, what would you say to them?
0: I would say work smart, not hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Work
0: smart, not hard. Figure out, look, examine your habits, figure out, Is there anything that you can do differently to maximize your productivity, you know, during your work time? And what can you do to make your personal time more sacred for yourself? Because you've got to take that personal time. If you don't, you'll burn out. Um, And you should take that personal time and you have a right to that personal time, regardless of what anybody says.
1: Thank you again for listening to Hashtag Teacher You can support this podcast by liking us on social media, sharing with your friends, and most importantly, by having more of these open and honest conversations with teachers around you. This is our last teacher interview of this season, and I hope that you've connected with some of these incredible teachers that I've had the privilege of talking to. As the summer is dying down, make sure to fill up your cup make proactive plans to support your own mental wellness, and, as Ashley puts it, Netflix and chill. But you can interpret that however you want. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can go to teacherlifepod.com, click on Be a Guest, and fill out the form. I'd love to hear and share your stories as well. And if you have any feedback or would just like to chat, you can always find me on Facebook or Instagram At Teacher Life Pod. I'm Victoria Wong, and remember, teachers, your voice is important, you deserve to be heard, and you are absolutely enough. See you next time.